arm. I spent all day in the doctor's office getting some kind of fluoroscope thing done. And my goodness, my they, they were like an hour late getting the appointments because there was like a toddler that needed to be like coaxed internally x-rayed. And it yeah. sucks, you know. But it meant that I got more time in the waiting room, which was very exciting. Uh, <laughs> you got to sit around and do nothing. <laughs> There's a woman who kept breaking into the radiology unit. And there, <laughs> I just saw them. They kept ushering her out. And they're like, how do you keep getting back in here? They're like, you're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to be here. And she goes, they told me radiology. And they're like, yes, but you have to go check in at the front desk first. And then they'll tell you when to cut. Like, it was, she was very... I don't know how she kept getting back in there, but and then she was like walking back and they're like, uh uh-uh, uh, don't you dare. This is not a safe radiology lab, <laughs> no, Katie. It's like not. they can't control their people. Well, and then they send me back into the changing room to like, you know, get the little x ray shorts on or whatever they were doing and sure. like the hospital gown for me to get my full body x ray. It wasn't an MRI, MRI or a CAT scan. I want to make that very clear. So I'm getting dressed and they're like, Oh, you can go into this changing room. And like they touch my curtain and I'm like naked. And the girl goes, No, no, I just sent someone in there. And I was like, Thank God someone said something. Like You could have said something. <laughs> Katie, thank God someone I, said something. I, that did not occur to me <laughs> at all that I could stop what was happening. Like I'm in here. Someone's in here. Oh my gosh. A human being, a naked human being is in the- <laughs> Is behind the curtain. Does it, I mean, why? <laughs> it's the great and powerful Oz. Um, why is it still that, like, when somebody knocks on the bathroom door and you're in it, I still don't know what to say. I don't know what I to say. I freeze up. I go, hello? Wait, what, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm in here. <laughs> Someone's here. Hold on. So uncomfortable. <laughs> the thing that every, I think if I were president, I would make a rule that every single bathroom in the United States had to have the nice little porta potty red green w- red green window display love it every single one also can we please dear god make the gaps a little bit smaller oh yeah oh yeah what's up with that i don't know it's crazy we all need a bathroom safe word honestly seriously what if you just like made a whole different thing up to say when people knock on the oh, door yeah. Yeah, I would love that. We should start um, yelling the Kevin McAllister. <laughs> <laughs> Before I pump your guts full of lead. <laughs> okay. Oh my god! But we're yeah, not here to talk the about animal. That. No, 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 no. Uh, no, we're here to talk about history <laughs> on the rocks with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we're not historians. Mm -hmm. We read a lot. We watch a lot of videos. And then Mm -hmm. we do our best to tie this story up in a nice little bow for you. Yep. I mean, I think we both, like, mine was a lot of a non-English sources, so Mm -hmm. I had to, like, really muddle through that um, and figure out what the heck was going on. And I'm doing a fictional person (laughs) this week, so it's a lot of, like, trying to weave in the actual story with the, like, creators. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very weird, but fun. But it's fun. Um, But before we get into it, we need to do something for you. This is a little favor. 
yeah, because we like to extend to you. You don't have time to look these people up. No, we spend our weeks doing that. We spent we, we Allie and I do it, so you don't have to. So we're gonna describe what these women look like, so you can have a picture in your head while we're telling their story. We're gonna get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing, and what does she look like? I'm doing Rainbow Bright. Fresh out of the 1980s. Um, and she's a young girl with yellow blonde hair, including bangs and a side ponytail. She wears multicolored moon boots and has a blue jumper, like American jumper, not sweater. Mm-hmm. And with these puffy multicolor sleeves that match her boots. Exciting. And she can also be like seen riding around on her rainbow colored horse. <laughs> so she, you know, she is rainbow bright. She's covered in rainbows. Perfect. And she's bright. <laughs> um, what are I, you doing? I am doing Ofra Haza. Ofra was a beautiful young Yemeni woman from uh, who grew up in Israel. She had a long oval face that was like kind of flat and she had like very high cheekbones. Uh, She had dark almond-shaped eyes and this big, just, like, wide smile that showed off her perfect teeth. And her whole face kind of, like, I say, like, um, oval-shaped, but it was really more of an almond-shaped face. Like, it came down to a point. Uh, She had very dark, big, curly hair that was often worn down. And her outfits ranged from traditional Middle Eastern garb with beautiful headdresses to flashy sequined outfits that screamed the 1980s. Oh, we're both in the 80s this both week. Both in the 80s this week. It's 80s exciting. Week, baby. I should have busted out my crimper, but I didn't. I didn't have enough notice. So tell me what I'm about to drink. Okay. This is called Global Goddess. And uh, so this is an ounce and a half of tequila, an ounce and a half of fresh orange juice, an ounce of Aperol, um, half an ounce to like three fourths of sweetened lime juice, and you have a dash of chili powder in there. You rim the glass with salt and chili powder, um, and garnish with an orange slice, and top with tonic water. Sorry, a lot of ingredients. So many. <laughs> Cheers. Mmm, less spicy than I thought it would be. Yeah, I really like the salt and chili powder mix that adds yeah. something really nice to the drink. I mm-hmm. actually think that's probably the best part. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, because I'm not getting as much flavor from the actual drink as I thought I would. Yeah, I think Aperol tends to blend in really nicely, especially when you have tonic water. Mm-hmm. It makes it a really pretty color. Yeah, it does. Mm. Mm. All right, so what do you know about Ofra Haza? So really all I know is she's a singer, mm-hmm. and she is extraordinarily famous in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when we added her to our list, it said that she is like the Madonna mm-hmm. of the Middle East. But I don't know anything about her. I've seen pictures of her and mm-hmm. her big hair and mm-hmm. her oval face. But <laughs> that's that's all. I don't know anything about her life, about her music. I've never heard a song of hers. Nothing. Well, you have. But what? you just might not know it. Oh. <laughs> what? Oh, my gosh. You're, you're building me up to something amazing. Yes. Okay. So I got most of my information from two sources. Sure. One was Wikipedia, and the other one was a documentary on YouTube that was cut into five parts. Love those. Um, and so it was uh, called Ofrahaza Secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it. Bat Sheva Ofrahaza was born in Tel Aviv, Israel on November 19, 1957 to Mizrahi Jewish parents from Yemen 
who had immigrated to Israel in 1949 with eight children. And you said from Yemen? Yes. Okay. So this, of course, means that she is the youngest of nine children, six sisters, two brothers. Um, her parents' names were Yefet and Shoshana Haza. She was raised in a Missouri household, which from my understanding, from what I researched on Wikipedia, means that they were practicing Jews, so they weren't secular, but they weren't orthodox either. Um, they perceived the preservation of the Jewish tradition and family customs as an educational and family value, but are not strict about applying orthodox laws. So, like, she'll wear a hood covering sometimes, but it's not like she feels like she needs to all the time. Sure. So, yeah. Um, and this is like what a lot of like I think modern Jewish families practice is this particular branch of you know or, Judaism. And I don't even want to call it a branch. I'm I, like was denomination. It? Yeah, yeah. Um, and although she was named Batsheva, her sisters didn't like that name, so they referred to her by her middle name Ofra. Well, that's a lot cuter than Batsheva. Yeah. <laughs> so she stood out from her many siblings early on with her incredible singing voice. She took after her mother, who was a professional Yemeni singer. But when Ofra was growing up, uh, her mother mainly performed just at like family events for young children. Um, and she grew up in a household where her mother was constantly singing traditional uh, Yemeni and Israeli songs. So do they speak Arabic in Yemen? And then probably did is she like multilingual? She's very multilingual. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly what languages she's fluent in. Um, probably Hebrew. Yeah, probably. she does speak Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And then... I would assume Arabic. So many of those yeah. countries right there. Yeah. That's like a primary language. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I know she speaks a lot of languages okay. and she's fluent in English as mm -hmm. well. That's um, so amazing to me. I know. <laughs> I'm like struggling to learn a little bit of Spanish. I know. And I'm, these people who know nine languages, I'm like, God damn it. You're so much better than me. <laughs> Um, so besides these beautiful traditional songs and Israeli folk music, she said she was also really inspired growing up by the Beatles and Elvis. So like she loves the traditional stuff, but she also loves pop music. <laughs> Good. Music was also a bit of an escape for her because she grew up in a poor area of Tel Aviv that suffered a lot with political, religious, social problems. So it was kind of her way to kind of be like, okay. I can be, like, a little separate up from this and also, like, maybe make my voice heard a little bit mm -hmm. when I sing. Um, she, Ofra became a soloist in her school choir, and soon she was able to make money off of her singing in a similar capacity to her mother at family events. Uh, she sang at a lot of weddings in particular. Then when she was 12 years old, she joined a local protest theater group named Hatif, Hatikva, which means The Hope. So this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about, like, she was literally a part of a singing troupe that was all about, like, protesting, like, the kind of um, wrongdoings in society at the time. Mm. And they're really about, like, we can all live peacefully together. Like, we have hope that that can happen. That's great. Um, so the troupe was run by one of her neighbors. Uh, he was a talent producer named Bezalel Aloni. And he quickly realized how talented Ofra was. And over the next seven years... He helped her hone her skills, and he became her manager, her mentor. I mean, up until the end, like she, he, they were together for so long, um, and he featured her every chance he got in the protest singing group. And by nineteen, he was like, "Okay, like I really want to start like 
making you more of like a solo act. And she really started to make a name for herself. And in 1976, she won first prize in the National Israeli Song Festival. Wow. I know. She had to take a two-year break like every Israeli youth must to join the Israel Defense Forces. Mm -hmm. Just Um, like Wonder Woman. I know. Just like Gal Gadot. (laughs) But after this, she was back on track. And she one of the first big things she did was she appeared in an Israeli movie called Schlager. Um, and her rendition of the movie's theme song became a huge hit in Israel. I'm sure I pronounced that completely wrong. <laughs> it sounds more German, Schlager. Okay, so like one of her Schlager. big songs. Yeah, it does. One of her big songs is like a movie soundtrack song. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in another movie, and she used the songs from this soundtrack to kind of help form her first studio album. Mm-hmm. So by 1983, she had two hit albums and won Best Female Vocal Artist four years in a row Wow! in Israel. So next step that would put her firmly on the international bat- map was Eurovision. <gasps> Ofra represented Israel, and she sang a song called Hi. <laughs> and dazzled the audience and she won second place. In Eurovision? Yes. No way. I know. Can you believe that? That's pretty crazy. <laughs> Ofra was now one of the most successful singers to come out of Israel. But by 1985, she was feeling the need to represent more of her heritage. So she released an album of Yemeni songs. But some of these traditional folk songs were remixed and made modern, which people just really loved. And funny enough, it was this album that she really, you know, made to honor her parents and her heritage that struck a chord, especially with European listeners. So, like, they knew her from Eurovision. And then she released this song of Yemeni songs that were, like, also club mixes. And they were like, we love this. I can imagine, like, songs that you grew up with that you feel like aren't popular enough for people in other cultures to know. Turning them into pop music must feel so good. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it would be, like, if you grew up in like a Pentecostal Christian church and yeah. hit it big with like this little light of mine. Right. <laughs> it's like, excuse me, this originated from jars of clay. Yeah. <laughs> this was from the newsboys. Um, so Ofer then starts touring around Europe, performing songs from, you know, this album and her first couple albums. Then in 1988, her single, uh, Im Nina taken from her album Sade, which is also so funny because Sade is obviously a very, Maybe it's not pronounced that. I don't know. Um, but uh, these, this song was on constant rotation on European MTV. And the album itself was named Best International Album of the Year. Wow. She toured England, Germany, Switzerland, France, and Italy, often singing in other languages, even if she was just learning the songs phonetically. Okay. Eventually, she even went to Japan entered a music contest there, and won top prize at the Tokyo Music Festival. I need to hear her voice. I feel like she's got to be good, right? Like, really good? And again, once I get to the thing you know, you're going to be like, oh, my God. I'm so ready. I mean, in Germany in the late 80s, she was selling as many albums as Michael Jackson and Prince. Like, Germany especially fucking loves Ofrahasa. <laughs> Um, and she was just so popular. She was eventually uh, referred to as the Madonna of the East. Yeah. I mean, Germany, I feel like, has a very eclectic musical taste. Yes. And especially, I think, in the 80s when their dance club scene was, like, really popping. Okay. It was like that was – they were into a lot of interesting, cool – on Like edgy you know, like, music. New music. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, people connected with her music because even though she was a pop star she and she was making songs that people, again, like danced to in nightclubs, her voice sounded ancient, like it had been around for thousands of years. This caught the attention of American music producer Don Wass, and he wanted to produce her next album. Now, he may not be a household name, but he produced albums for big acts such as the Rolling Stones, Bonnie Raitt, the B-52s. And together they made her album Kira or Kiria in 1992, which was nominated for a Grammy in the U.S. And I believe she still might be the only Israeli artist to be nominated for that Grammy. It's like the world album Grammy. Okay. Or whatever it is. It's like for the international music. Um, so this started a whole new wave of pop stars who wanted to collaborate with her, some from Germany, Japan, and the UK that we might not recognize, um, but were household names there at the time. But then there were U.S. stars like Iggy Pop, Paula Abdul, Lenny Kravitz, who wanted to hop on the Oprah train. They're like, come on, I want to do a song with you, girl. <laughs> and then, oddly enough, uh, her and Paul Anka did a collaboration called Freedom for the World, and they got to be very good friends. I, you know, I mean, I'm really good friends with him, and he talks mm-hmm. about her a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so she's pretty firmly established in the U.S. now, and she gets a big opportunity. A man named Jeffrey Katzenberg has just started a new animation studio, and he needs someone to provide unique vocals for his first film. So, one, the guy in charge of the music, Hans Zimmer, he's German, so he knows Oprah. He's uh-huh. like, you have to listen to this girl. She's incredible. I think she'd be great for it. So he's like, okay, this sounds great. Bring her in. Katzenberg's involved with Disney now, right? Yeah, now. Yeah. yeah. Um. So she auditions, and when she comes in, so Jeffrey Katzenberg, Hans Zimmer, Steven Spielberg are all in this room, and they are blown away by her singing. They're like, she's perfect. They're like, this is exactly what we're looking for. And that's how Ofra Haza became the voice of the Prince of Egypt. Nah. <laughs> Nah, that's perfect too because she is Israeli. She actually is from the region. The area. <laughs> is based in, can you and imagine? She is a Jewish woman. Like, can you imagine? I can't because they have done so much wrong in regards to this to <laughs> like, representation. That's amazing. Yeah. So she is singing the music in that film, or yes. she's the voice of a character as well. Both. So okay. she provides a lot of like the incidental, you know, like because it's like I don't even want to like pretend to do it, you know. But mm-hmm. it's like all of like that, like you know, it, it gives it that like traditional feel like mm-hmm. when you hear it almost like like the soundtrack of moana has very like in the background yeah. you know what i mean mm-hmm. it has the very like polynesian samoan style music yep so a lot of like the just like vocal riffs that you hear throughout the movie mm-hmm. are her um and of course her biggest splash comes right in the beginning of the movie in the song deliver us i mean her voice just gave it this feeling of authenticity because like Hans Zimmer pointed out, he goes, because she was the real thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they also ended up casting her as Moses's mother. Um, so because I think she does have a, in my memory, she only sings, but maybe she does more than that. Um, but they just loved her voice so much. So she is the character of Yaqved. Um, and the character was even drawn to resemble her. So like the famous like lullaby, 
that is Ofra. Yeah. So that's like a perfect example of her voice. And what a gut-wrenching character, too. Like, yeah. Moses' mother is literally like, I have to get rid of my baby so they don't kill my baby. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a traumatic thing to come into a movie on. It's like the beginning of Finding Nemo, only this was real. Yeah. And, like, while they were recording this, they ended up bringing, like, a baby doll into it. So she's singing to a plastic baby doll that they got from, like, the dollar store. And they said while she's singing the lullaby to baby Moses, everyone in the studio was like sobbing listening to her. I'm sure. She was so good that they wanted her to sing every version of the song. So she ended up performing this song, Deliver Us, in 19 different languages. 19? (laughs) Which again, most of which she had to do phonetically. (sighs) Oprah was becoming this symbol of like world peace and world togetherness and leaders started to ask her to perform at all sorts of international events including the nobel peace prize ceremony (laughs) and of course with all this new celebrity and these international accolades there are a lot of suitors coming around to court miss haza can we please get her in the united nations i know she'd be like the spokesperson (sighs) but oprah had this kind of like i don't know she just she really believed in in love and she believed in waiting for love and that the right man was just going to come out of nowhere and she would know immediately so okay. people tried to set her up all the time men tried to approach her all the time and she would go out on like maybe one or two dates but if she wasn't feeling it she wasn't going to waste any more time on it there was even like a belgian prince who was in the running who wanted to be with her but it just didn't go anywhere she really wanted to meet cute yeah and she said you know i'd rather be single than married and in an unhealthy bad relationship many people referred to this as her being naive and childlike um which because now it's like she was getting into her late 30s and she like literally had not really had any kind of serious boyfriend or anything Mm. she you know so but i don't i can't tell if she was being just naive or if she was just trying to be really smart because she knew that like a lot was at stake i mean she was a very wealthy woman by this point so the fact of the matter was she was getting older so at 38 years old ofra decided that she was going to go back home take some time off from her career and really try and find someone to have a family with unfortunately i think by the time she got to 38 like when she was in her mid-30s she goes oh yeah i'm just waiting for it like it'll happen and then I think she started to panic a little bit. A little desperate. And then when she was going home to Tel Aviv, people in her community were like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're not being a good Jewish girl. Like, you're not getting married. You're not having babies. And she's like, I'm trying. Like, I just haven't found the right person yet. So by this time, I think she was just like a little more panicked. Um, and her manager thinks that this is the reason she ended up quickly marrying a businessman named Doran Ashkenazi when now, was she he was 39. Was he a busy businessman? He said he was. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Now, I have no idea how old Doran was. He's a very mysterious character, but he did bring a child and a stepchild into the marriage from pre- uh, previous relationships. And it sucks because after all of his patience and waiting, it seemed like Ofra had still managed to make the wrong choice and ended up with a total skeezeball. I hate that. I mean, even at their wedding, Duran wanted to make a big arrival, so he arranged for himself to arrive at their wedding in a gilded horse and carriage combo. And when he got out, he like had like 
hundreds of Ofra's fans like escort his carriage to the <laughs> wedding site, which Ofra was like, douchebag. Ofra was like, we're having it at my parents' house. Like, why is it? <laughs> they were literally having it at her parents' house. She, so she's like, I don't want a big thing. I just want to get married and settle down. And he's like, I want to exploit your fame as best I can. Yeah. Okay. He loved it. But <laughs> Ofra's longtime manager, Aloni. So this is the guy that, I mean. He's been there since day one. She was 12 years old. <laughs> he did not like this at all. He was very against this marriage, especially when it started to affect her personal life and her career. Um, Aloni recalls that there were some just like off the bat weird things. Like he didn't like that Duran used coarse language around her. He thought that seemed, he was like, that's uncomfortable. Like Oprah doesn't curse like that. And like, why are you talking like that? Yeah, Like this is inappropriate. Yeah. And it seemed like some of the things he said about his business didn't make any sense. And he would often be called out on these little lies that he would tell and have to backtrack frequently and Aloni was like, I also think he was trying to push me out of the situation because, like, I went over to their house for a barbecue and they just gave me a plate of garlic. It's like, there was other food there and I was only given garlic to eat. <laughs> like, very weird. Like, did they think he was a vampire? I don't know. <laughs> and then there were also other things, like, even though Ofra owned a house in Tel Aviv, suddenly she was renting four separate apartments, and they were moving between all of them frequently. Like, for fun? And it's like, I don't really know much about Tel Aviv, but, like, it can't, it's not like, you wouldn't even do that in, like, New York, which is, like, a huge city, like. I don't think that that's necessary there to have four separate apartments. And also, like, what a hassle. Like, oh, I forgot the one shirt I want at this other apartment. Right. So weird. But she wanted desperately to get pregnant and for them to start a family together. But it just, like, wasn't working. She couldn't get pregnant. Well, the clock is and ticking she, at this point, right? She was 39. She's 39. And she and this had is the, a few what, 90s? miscarriages. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's not as, like, now you can be 39 and get pregnant and right. get help. And, but then it wasn't as easily accessible. Not as easy. And as the next few years progressed, she became more and more reclusive, and her relationships outside of her marriage suffered, especially with Aloni. She was still making plans and making music. I mean, in 1999, she was recording music for her next album, but things just seemed to be really off. She ended up not being able to finish that album because she was soon completely bedridden. Ofra had been sick, and she just kept getting sicker. She was weak and vomiting. She lost an insane amount of weight. Her sister came over to see her and was shocked by her appearance. Wait, is this one of those things where the husband is slowly poisoning you? Because (laughs) I would hate that. (laughs) And Duran is not giving her any straight answers. And he was like, I'm going to let Dr. Mimi take care of this. Dr. Mimi was like her gynecologist who was there the whole time and was like, you're not allowed to speak to the, like me or Durant. Like we have this taken care of. So the sisters are trying, like the sisters trying to figure out what's going on. And Ofra is like crying and saying like, I need to go to the hospital. I need to go to the hospital. But then when her sister would be like, okay, I'll call the ambulance. She would go, no, no, never mind. I should stay home. I should stay home with the doctor that's been treating me. If I go to the hospital, I might be arrested. Oh, so there is something, there's something going shady on. going on. There's drugs. There's a cult situation. <laughs> her husband is slowly murdering her. He's feeding her rat poison. We'll see. That's it. 
Hemlock. And, and Duran is not being helpful because he's like, yeah, we don't need to go to the hospital. We'll take her to a private medical center tomorrow. How long would it take for me to guess? Forever. You're not going to guess what's going on. Okay. But Ofra was in really bad shape. Her sister's afraid and she's confused. So she calls two of the, her other sisters and she goes, you need to come to Ofra's. I think she's dying. They get there and they take over the situation. They're like, I don't care what either of you say. We're calling an ambulance and we're going to the hospital. She gets to the hospital and the doctor there gets a note from Dr. Mimi, uh, who's been treating her at home. And it says, don't worry about Ofra. She just has a really bad case of the flu. And the doctor's like, no, she doesn't. And she has like injection marks all over her body. Like, what the fuck is going on here? And of course, Duran is not giving him any straight answers. And he's not letting the sisters talk to the doctors. He's still trying to like just completely block them out. Ofra's condition worsened. And she was soon heavily sedated while news spread around Israel. That she's in the hospital. That she's in the hospital. Aloni, her manager, tries to come see her. He's not allowed in the room. But he did eventually sneak in one day to say goodbye because everyone agreed. They're like, I don't think she's going to make it out of this alive. Like, she is dying. And after 13 days in the hospital, Ofra Haza passed away on February 23rd, 2000, at the age of 42. No way. Yeah. What a screeching halt. I thought a she was coming back from halt. this. No. Her family and close friends, and of course the public, were baffled. How could she be gone so quickly? Duran is not giving any answers, so her family hires a private investigator and they get the police involved. And the private investigator is finding out some interesting things. So Ofra and Duran had a prenup saying that for the first five years of marriage, everything that they owned uh, was going to remain separate. Like, you know, yours is yours, mine is mine. And after five years, we can inherit each other's money. Well, Duran did not like that. And he started coming home and saying that he was sick. He couldn't show her any paperwork or doctor's notes, but he said, I have a tumor. I'm not doing well. They say I could go any day now. So I think we should change the prenup so that you can inherit all of my money if, in case anything happens to me. He didn't have any fucking money. He was lying about this. <laughs> and of course, once they changed it, he started to ma- miraculously recover. And then as suddenly it was Ofra who became ill. Then Duran starts pushing for them to sell Ofra's house. They put it on the market, and two days before she went into the hospital, she called the agent, sounding very weak, and she goes, cancel the sale. But eventually it didn't matter because the house was repossessed anyways because Duran had drained Ofra's account that was paying for the mortgage. Then it was discovered that he used the money to pay for 20, or he used not that money, just more of Ofra's money from her accounts to buy 24 burial sites in a cemetery. Why? For what? (laughs) For God knows what. Uh, At first, he was saying, you get a burial site. You get a burial site. And, like, he was saying it to family members, and they're like, we've got our graves. We don't want to be buried there. I don't want one of your graves. I've already picked out where I'm going to be buried. Like, I don't need this. Um, But then months later, after Ofra's death, the family lawyer was obviously trying to make heads or tails of this, and he contacted the graveyard, and they're like, oh, no, he doesn't have those sites anymore. 19 of them, uh, he ended up selling back to us. So he bought them with Ofra's money, returned 19 of them for $50,000, and had that deposited into his own account. So he is money laundering. Slick scam. He's money laundering. 
Then they found out that he had also forged a letter which stated that Ofer's royalties from the Prince of Egypt soundtrack should no longer be deposited into her account, but into Duran's personal account that was in a bank based in New York. And, of course, her will was nowhere to be found because her will had stated that she wanted everything to go to her family and her nieces, and then there's no will. So they can't prove that she wanted any of that to happen with her money. This, of course, means that Duran was stealing from her before, during, and after her death. And now we come to the ultimate question. How did Ofra die? What was the cause? He killed her. In a way, but not not directly. It eventually came out that Ofra Haza had died of complications related to AIDS. Really? Mm-hmm. And considering that her husband was the first and only man she ever had sex with, we can ascertain that, like, he gave it to her, but it's not like he planned on giving it to her. Or maybe he did. I don't know. It's just, like, really fucking shitty. So is he currently alive? No. So he also died of HIV AIDS? No. No, he died of something <laughs> else. Something else. <laughs> he, of course, denied this. He goes, no, she got it from a, bla- a bad blood transfusion after one of her miscarriages. Like, it wasn't me. But this kind of explains why Ofra was, she was really afraid. Because number at first she didn't know why she was sick. And then she found this out. And then she goes, I can't tell anyone. This yeah. is, I mean, 1999. Like, AIDS is still this, like, hot button issue. It's like, you taboo, You cannot for talk sure. about it. Yeah. And uh, she is just, like, so embarrassed. She, and that's why she was like, I can't go to the hospital. They're going to arrest me. Like, I, I can't. I cannot deal with it. She was terrified. Yeah. And it's why she really didn't seek help. And, you know, she was kind of right in a way because when the public found out, there was an uproar. And it caused this, like, wave of fear because Ofra was known as a fairly straight-laced person. She was not promiscuous. She did not do drugs. So how in the world does a person like that contract AIDS? I mean, it was really scary. And... Again, what was even worse is that she truly died because of her fear of the public backlash. Right. If, the, if they found out she had AIDS. Because she could have been treated to prolong her life at that point. Exactly. It's not like a today where we can pretty much, like, not cure it, but we can right. make sure that people have a very comfortable life and treat it. Yeah. But then it was like, no. I mean, she died in two and a half years. Yeah, it was still a death sentence. Yeah. But she, her life could have been prolonged if she could was going to the doctors, longer. especially because she had money. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it was about money mm-hmm. to get AIDS treatment. Absolutely. So, all of this, along with the investigations into her shady husband, meant that her affairs were tied up in court for a long time. But her family never saw justice for Ofra because Duran himself died of a drug overdose in the arms of a sex worker just a year later a year after this i hate him he's the worst yeah question then remains what would ofra's career had been like if she had not died so young hans zimmer says that anytime he gets involved with a project that requires a big voice his first thought is always ofra he was already planning to use her on the upcoming soundtrack for the film Gladiator when she died. And she would have been great voice oh, for that movie. Would have been perfect. 
But thankfully, her legacy will live on in the music she was able to produce while she was still here. And some of it that was produced after. Uh, One place a lot of people may recognize her voice is from Grand Theft Auto. Uh, Her music (laughs) is used in the soundtrack for Liberty City Stories. Fun! (laughs) And of course, most of all, her contribution to the Prince of Egypt soundtrack, which is absolutely legendary. So it's kind of funny because some of the songs from that movie are on my running playlist. So, like, I literally listen to her. All the time. time. (laughs) Pakistani blogger um, Sarmad Iqbal, who is known for his pro-peace stance, praised Ofrahaza enthusiastically in one of his blog posts. He said she was more than just a cultural icon of Israel, as she also tried to bridge the wide gap between Israel and her Arab Arab neighbors, as her song spread to a wider Middle Eastern audience, defying all barriers to peace and friendship between Arabs and Israel. So... I hope that what we can take from Oprah's story is that we need a little more peace and understanding in this world. I love her. I <laughs> wish she was on the Gladiator soundtrack. I know. You know that scene that happens 11 times in the movie where Russell Crowe just runs uh-huh. his hand through wheat? The wheat. The yes. wheat fields. Could you imagine if she was just like giving melody in the background? That was what she was supposed to do. While his hand is in the wheat? Hans Zimmer goes, lady who did it? She goes, she did a great job. He goes, <laughs> But she's not Ofra. Yeah. Oh, God. I just like, I can imagine her living this long life and doing, because like. You said 42? How old is she? 42. That's. In 2000. Distressing. Yeah. And like, because like Hans Zimmer eventually did the soundtrack music for, like, she probably would have done like Dune. Yes. You know? Yes. Because he did the music for that. Yeah. Yeah. He's absurdly like um, in the industry now. Yes, Hans very Zimmer. prolific, sure. and I feel like he's the one that he does those like big concerts. So like, I could totally imagine the two of them doing like a stadium tour, Some collab from all the soundtracks they've done together. And it just, I'm so mad that this douchebag just ruined her life in the last two and a half years. And I mean, the whole system of yeah. like forcing women to get married when they're not ready or into that idea that you're not woman enough. If mm-hmm. you're not married, the old maid, right? Trope. Exactly. Ugh. All right. Damn. That's getting a rainbow bright. Wow. Way to bring it down. Katie. <laughs> Part two. Duh. We're here. We are here. I meant to say like duh. Dos. Duh. <laughs> All the languages we need. Say, I Again, Ofra can sing in 19 languages. I can speak in one. We can barely say two <laughs> in more than one language. Um, are you ready to know about Rainbow Bright? I am. Because I don't know anything about her. I literally don't. Because this was much before my yes. era. And I think she was relatively short-lived. Like she was. She she was out by the end of the eighties, and yeah. you weren't born until like ninety-three, right? Ninety-three. Yeah. So she was kind of out of the picture. She was already on her way out of the picture when I was like four. Yeah. So um, it's Rainbow Bright's a lot of fun to talk about. So let's talk about what we're drinking yes, first. I love it. So this is very simple. It's just called the Rainbow Bright Martini. Okay. And in a martini glass. First, you should mix together vodka and orange juice. I did equal equal parts. Mm-hmm. Um, if 
you want it to be less strong, add more orange juice, and you pour that into the glass first. And then you drip grenadine down the side of the glass so that it settles on the bottom. And then in a separate glass, you mix equal parts champagne and blue curacao, and you pour it over a spoon, and it settles on top and has like a green-blue appearance. And hopefully, you get a layered cocktail. Perfect. Cheers. Cheers. It's funny because I think it needs to be more mixed. It's like the, um, yeah. all the ingredients are there, but all you're tasting is the stuff on top. Which is funny because I felt like that with mine too. It was like, I felt like, um, Arster does such Ew, it's so <laughs> ugly. It's brown. It's brown. Mine together and now it's brown. Which Lovely. <laughs> Here it is. Mine too. Mine's like a d- dirty yours is green. Like a cool, like a green. Yeah. Green. Add more um, orange juice to yours. Maybe it'll. Yeah, I think I need more orange juice and like. <laughs> the blue carousel is right here. Such different ingredients. Like <laughs> I don't colors. know. I don't know. Um. Okay. So tell me what you know about Rainbow Bright. Again, nothing. Okay. I kind of feel like. Because she was in the time of like My Little Pony and Care Bears, mm-hmm. they kind of blew her out of the water. Yeah. Because they were like groups, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Like of characters. And you can kind of like, we as a society love to pick which one we are. Mm-hmm. With Rainbow Bright, there's only one option. So that's just like my personal theory, knowing sure. absolutely nothing about her. Got it. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. <laughs> so. In the 1980s, the company, famous for Christmas ornaments and um, holiday straight-to-TV movies and Mother's Day greeting cards, was troubled by another greeting card company who had recently launched Strawberry Shortcake on their greeting cards. (gasps) I totally forgot about her. Yeah. So that's right. Hallmark is threatened by American greetings. They're really upset about the new little cutie, Strawberry Shortcake. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Was the chain greetings and readings from American greetings? I have no idea. Okay. It could be. I just, do you have that story in your mind? Yeah. Greetings and readings was yes. a treat to go to. <laughs> yeah. Derek was, McCracken worked there. I <laughs> love looking at trinkets. <laughs> I love it. Same. I still go to like the Hallmark crown stores that exist around and about. What's the store that you got our gifts at um, for your wedding? It's like Things Remembered or oh, something. Oh, yeah, that, but that are engraved. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I yeah. Okay, so Hallmark is kind of pissed off about strawberry shortcake. Okay. It's crazy. <laughs> your cocktail's such a crazy color. It's such a crazy color. Okay. So her original conception was to be a little girl that controlled nature. Okay. But eventually the idea evolves to become a girl who protects the colors of the universe. She is a color protector. Yep. I feel bad for saying this, but like, what the fuck does that even mean? Oh, we're gonna <laughs> get there. She's so good at color protecting. <laughs> what? what? Colors yep. are going extinct. They are going extinct. Not on Earth. Not on Earth. Oh, okay. She's not from Earth. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, so with Hallmark, just to project into the future, her department eventually becomes so big that Hallmark has to open an entire new division with, like, lawyers and executives 
But it all started with a little TV show that they put together. But it's not slated for one network. Because it's from Hallmark, it is syndicated into multiple networks. Like everybody is playing this one TV show. Furthermore, it ends up only being one season comprising of 13 episodes that took about 18 months. Okay. But before we get into how and why Rainbow Bright with this one season and 13 episodes became such a phenomenon, I want to introduce you to Rainbow Bright herself. In English-speaking countries, she's simply Rainbow Bright. But you might know her as the magical girl Rainbow in Japan. You might know her as Azorine in French-speaking Canada. You might know her as Blondine in other French-speaking countries. She is Regina Rainbow in Germany. Regina. <laughs> Regina Rainbow. I guess that means queen. So yeah. Queen, queen of the Rainbow. Rain- queen of the Rainbows. Um, she's Iridella in Italy. Oh, I like that one. She's... Erco Irish in Spanish and Portuguese nations. And there's just a variety of other names for her. So Hallmark blew her up everywhere. She's worldwide. So I want to start with a basic rundown of Rainbow Bright's story so that people like Katie who aren't super familiar with her will get an idea. And I'm also going to weave in some interesting facts about her along the way, things that I loved and things that um, some of my sources said were really important. And I looked at the Hallmark website, um, HuffPost, Looper, and a sci-fi YouTube video, like one of those ones that goes deep into characters. Mm -hmm. Love those. Okay, so once upon a time, there's a little girl named Wisp, and she becomes aware that there's a place called Rainbowland, and the Dark One has taken over the entire planet and turned it into a gloomy, dismal place where there is no joy. And this young girl made it her mission to go to that world and turn it back into the beautiful place it had once been. Okay. So she has to restore the color. Um, and when you go there... Um, in her show, it is all grays and browns and blacks, neutral colors. Um, to do this, of course, she has a whole bunch of quests she has to go on. She has to find the color belt, which is like her rainbow belt she ends up wearing. She has to find the sphere of light. Um, and when she arrives, her first acquaintance that she makes is a little white sprite named Twink. Uh, and he gives her advice get the fuck out of here he's like this is a bad idea you can't save this planet it's gonna strip you of your joy don't even try but she's very different connotations now yeah a friend (laughs) called the twink yes exactly (laughs) yes that's true but but today twink (laughs) he's like a fluffy like white character he's really cute (laughs) kind of sounds on Uh sounds (laughs) on point yep 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 So she's determined anyway to save the planet, and he, like, admires her courage. So he's like, okay, I'll go along with you. One thing that is really interesting about this show is there's no adjustment for time. So it's almost like it's in the mind of a kid. So you know how, like, in Dorothy, she has some time in Munchkinland to be like, where the fuck am I? Right. And, like, um, Lucy goes through the wardrobe and, like, comes back and is like, what the fuck was that? Right. That doesn't happen with Rainbow Bright. There is no world building because she's in the mind of a kid. Here's the problem. I want to fix the problem. Okay. So it's just, like, there's no adjustment 
period. Mm -hmm. Another cool thing is that we later kind of get some backstory on Twink and we find out he used to be a red sprite, but the bad guy drained him of his (gasps) color. Um, But despite that, he is still the head sprite. So it's showing like beyond trauma, like you can still be in control of your situation. But that's also why he's like, get the fuck out of here. Like he's going to take all your colors away. Like look at how boring and bland I am. But in true Dorothy fashion... She collects another sidekick pretty quickly, and his name, he's a horse, is Starlight. Okay. And he was frozen in some ice, but Rainbow and Twink free him from the ice. Very Han Solo of them. Yeah. He was really in the carbon, <laughs> Leia's in the bikini. It's a whole thing. Having a cool sidekick is definitely a big fantasy genre. Mm-hmm. But her horse, of course, as a sidekick, is brave, is strong, has to pull off some major stunts, but he's also super chatty. Like, Mm. he is a talkative horse, and his favorite subject is himself and how great he is. (laughs) He is the most conceited side character I've ever seen on television. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. So far, you're not selling me on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Listen. No shade, Rainbow Brain. I'm not intending to sell you on this show. It's crazy because I think it it was most side characters and heroes were humble back then. Yeah. And I think it was very cool for him to just be like, no, I did that. And I'm awesome. And you need my help. Yeah, that's true. Well, I do. <laughs> I do think that. Side also character. very Han Solo of him. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. If Chewbacca was like a total narcissist. <laughs> um, <laughs> as if I'm saying that like Han Solo is the main character of the movie. But yes. But if now Luke is the main character, it, Han Solo character. is super conceited. Okay, so Luke, I mean, yeah, Han Solo really is the starlight, whatever that horse's name yeah, is. Yeah, you were right. Good job. Starlight. On one of, take. Of <laughs> Star, Star Wars. Wars. The starlight of Star Wars? <sighs> George Lucas watched this show for sure. <laughs> it's like the first Star like Wars it came, came out first. <laughs> Maybe this show I watched would love Star Wars. it if Rainbow Bright was like we sought a lot of inspiration from George Star Lucas. Wars. <laughs> George Lucas. Okay. okay. This trio goes through tons of struggles. They find a baby at one point and they can't leave him alone, so they have to take him along and then it starts to rain and they have to go into like a cave and that's where they find the color belt and then they find out the baby is actually the sphere of light. It's crazy. Now I'm getting Harry Potter vibes. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, the baby sphere of light. You're the one. You didn't know, <laughs> but you're the one. When you got to find the belt, you got to find the other horcrux. And guess what they have to find now? Side a quest ring. galore. <laughs> Side quest galore is about to happen, and there's seven of them. <laughs> no. Are there really? Yeah. She has to go on a whole bunch of side quests to find the seven color kids. Each one of their names is an alliteration. They've been imprisoned all across the land, and, like, when the red one gets free, red color comes back to the land. Like, when the blue one gets okay. free. So she's got to find all of these Are these Ro- Roy kids. B. Jibs? Roy G. Bibbs. Roy G. Bibbs. Roy G. Bibbs. All of them, okay. yeah. All of them. There's boy blue. It's, like it's really, it's really cute. This is kind of another place where this show goes rogue. Each time she's freeing one of these kids, she's confronting monsters, and they are scary and menacing. Um, and I think at this point there were two kinds of shows. There was like 
He-Man, uh-huh. where they fought monsters, mm-hmm. and there were Care Bears, where they like dealt with emotions uh-huh. and like, oh, somebody on Earth isn't happy. Our Happy Tron's not up, mm-hmm. and that's how the My Little Ponies were too. Mm-hmm. This show did both at the same time, so it was a very odd place in children's television. It was like too scary for really young kids, but too little for older kids. It's giving the last unicorn vibes. <laughs> It is. That movie is so fucking scary. Yes. I had nightmares for years mm-hmm. after watching that movie. It's it was, scary. Uh, some dramatic. Sh- some movies <laughs> the like- 80s was not joking around <laughs> with their villains. No. They were like going for French scary. You know how like yes. things in France are like actually scary? Like yes. they're scary stories. And I've heard that their haunted house um, in um, their Disney world, their Disneyland, is so scary. The haunted mansion there. Like, they come to ours and they're like, this is a joke. Because it's for children. Yeah. <laughs> Not France. In, Fran- in France, it's for children as well. They just have bigger balls than us. <laughs> They're like, this is not scary. World War II literally happened in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't scary for me. Um, okay. So she finds all the color kids. Obviously, I'm skipping a whole bunch of shit that we all don't care about. <laughs> she has to deal with the big boss, the dark one himself. Um, and she needs to defeat him to restore all the color. Once she does that, she's given the name Rainbow Bright instead of Wisp because she's kind of saved the land. And she's in charge of keeping the color alive in Rainbow Land and also on Earth. And her helpers, the color kids, and the small sprites mine color crystals from the caves, blah, 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 blah. Unfortunately, not all of the inhabitants of Rainbow Land support her. Mm. There is the murky dismal and his sidekick lurky and they're always up to mischief trying to steal colors back away these guys are interesting because they're just like very monochromatic villains because they're just like one solid color um but they are given backstories and i think murky's is really interesting they do a lot of flashbacks on this show which i feel like is (laughs) kind of a new thing um And when he was a kid, he, like, drew on the walls or something, and his mom yells at him, like, get rid of that color if it takes the rest of your life. And it's like, wow, what you say to kids has a really big impact. (laughs) Like, he's a villain because his mom yelled at him. Wow. That's pretty traumatic. (laughs) I feel like you don't get that, like, a lot until, like, current Disney movies. Yeah. Of, like, you know, being like, the villains, there's a reason they're a villain. Like, yeah. that was not normal back then. Yeah, they're not just, like, maniacal for no reason. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So she confronts other villains over time, but that's really, that's the basic rundown of the show. Okay. So let's move back to the corporation and what's going on. It's 1984. The canvas of children's entertainment from Hallmark is about to get a lot more colorful. It's released in 1984 with the character Rainbow Bright. She, not just a show for them, but they were watching what uh, American Greetings is doing with Strawberry Shortcake, and you can license a whole bunch of things, lunchboxes, toys, this, that, and the other. Thank you, Beatrix Potter. (laughs) Yay! Thank you, girl. You're so great with your marketing. I was telling my mom that the other day. Was she blown away? Is my mom blown away by anything? <laughs> Has she ever been blown away by one thing I've said? She probably changed the conversation immediately to be about herself. <laughs> um, no, it's because we have a whole bunch of um, 
Peter Rabbit uh, memorabilia that like our grandmother has given us over the years. Mm-hmm. And one of my nieces is really into Peter Rabbit right really? now. So my mom was like giving her a lot of stuff. And I was like, save me one thing that right. says Beatrix Potter on it. I was yes. like, I don't want the stupid piggy banks and this, that and the other. Give me right. like one. So I got my one thing. Good. And that's it. So her early design was done by artist G.G. Santiago, and all the characters were female. All the color kids, Rainbow Bright, the whole deal. Um, And she looked a lot more like a Precious Moments doll Uh at that point, like Uh very sweet. Um, But eventually they were like, okay, but we don't want this to be a girl's show. We want this to be a kid's show. So the horse becomes male, the red and blue color kids become male, and they eventually um, add this boy from Earth named Brian who wears like a blue shirt with a jersey number on it, and he can go through any door in his house to get to Rainbow Land and help her on her journey and then goes back to Earth. Okay. Just Brian. Just (laughs) We like Brian. (laughs) He's I'm fun just character. Brian. <laughs> She's Rainbow Bright, and he's just <laughs> Brian. <laughs> oh, yes. True. Ooh. And Mattel's in this story right oh, now. Perfect. So isn't this great? Look at this kismetness. <laughs> so even though Hallmark created her, they knew to do this that they needed powerhouses like Disney and Mattel to make this a success. So... These major corporations that are usually pitted against each other come together to try to make money together. The result being a billion-dollar commodity of Rainbow Bright. Rainbow Bright is billion-dollar material? (laughs) Yes. And she took the world by storm. This is so bananas just because (laughs) it is not in my lexicon at all. I mean, okay, so when I was a kid, every child was Rainbow Bright for Halloween. Really? Every child. (gasps) Like, I have pictures of my friends as Rainbow Bright. What? I was Dorothy, of course. <laughs> of course. Be- because of I'm course. a brown head. <laughs> Not a yellow head. We just need to bring in more respect for the brown-haired heroines. <laughs> if our podcast is about nothing else, <laughs> it's about increasing respect for brunettes. Talk to me about Tina Fey. <laughs> Talk to me about RBG. (laughs) (laughs) The brown heads. The Bee Gees, the brunette goddesses. (laughs) They could also stand for blonde goddess. (laughs) No, because it's coloring book style. If you're blonde, you have yellow hair. It's true. Cartoons. Yeah. And this is the brown hair crew. (laughs) So stupid. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So they first dive into the TV show. That's the first thing they all decide to do. So it's, like I said, it's 13 episodes. The first um, episode is called Peril in the Pits, and it was written by Woody Kling, and it comes out in 1984, and it meets so much praise. People are like, this is amazing, because, again, it's on all these channels. So they immediately start producing the next two episodes. They're both also written by Woody Kling, but then he gets really ill, and a guy named Howard R. Cohen takes over for the rest of kind of this series. A little girl named Benita Bush is cast to voice Rainbow Bright. She had experience as Lucy Little in The Littles, Dottie the Dog, in The Get Along Gang, and most importantly, the yellow-headed girl Megan in My Little Ponies. So she's very experienced. She really is. And she's the only child who lent her voice to this show. Everybody else is an adult. Mm -hmm. So it's very 
like true and honest when you have a little kid do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so she gets to voice this series. Robbie Lee voiced Twink and several of the color kids and said that was um, their favorite, her favorite character to do of all time. And Peter Cullen did Murky Dismal. And he's famous because he's Optimus Prime on the Transformers series. Whoa. Yeah. So he was in Rainbow Bright and in Transformers. <laughs> what? Call me when he reaches and Animorphs IMDb. level. <laughs> Animorphs. Tell me when he's on Who's Afraid of the Dark. (laughs) Yes. So Mattel is chosen to manufacture the dolls and Disney is chosen to help record the music. So Disney's recording the music with this husband-wife singer-songwriter team and Mattel is going to manufacture all the dolls from Rainbowland. And she went through several designs before they land on one. Um, But the design was pretty similar to the beginning. The only difference is um, she had on a space helmet instead of moon boots and they're like, no, we want to see her cute hair. So let's put her in moon boots. Um, Gotta see that blonde hair. Yeah. Gotta see the hair. (laughs) Why is she even blonde (laughs) then? No, she's blonde. Trust us, we do Barbie. <laughs> who remembers Teresa? no one not a soul think about midge discontinued discontinued so they're creating her but it's funny because to get the prototypes over to mattel the rainbow bright team at hallmark had to like make some dolls so like the people on the team are like learning how to sew <laughs> so that they can send some dolls to mattel to be like this is kind of what we want you to make <laughs> the scope of the rainbow bright franchise is as vast as the color spectrum itself it's like what beatrix potter did they had coloring books, trading cards, board games, backpacks, lunchboxes, cross-stitch patterns, figurines, nightlights. Of course, it's Hallmark, so there are Christmas tree ornaments, live action, a special series, um, cereal, which was like Fruit Loops, but so sugary as a child. I was like, I cannot eat this. No, it was so, really? Katie, it was so sugary. <laughs> Theme park shows, there are commercials, like Everything is rainbow bright. At the same time, she is, at this point in history, 1985, Mattel's largest selling doll of of time up to this point. What? $35 million budget for her marketing, just to market her, which today is $77 million in today's money to promote her. Now, here's a question. Do we think that this is, because, like, obviously, like, Barbie was in reaction to, like, there being too many baby dolls, mm-hmm. too many baby dolls in the market. We need a woman, as we talked about in our episode. Do you think this was almost like in reverberation of that of like, OK, but also now I want like a baby doll again. Not like it, she's not a baby she's doll, like a but kid. she's like a kid, like a toddler doll. You know, like I think it's the same reason that Rugrats and like Recess mm. caught on. It's like it's a something kids can relate to because they're their age because like. Right. Baby dolls are girls. Baby dolls are too young. Yeah. Barbie's too old. So, like, I understand why, like, Strawberry Shortcake and Rainbow Bright are, like, hitting the The elementary school kids. Yeah, because they're like, they are me. That's that's me. That's how old I am. Right. That's what I look like. I can do that. I can have a flying horse. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I can have. 
Not me, no, though, because I'm a brown head. <laughs> I'm a brown head. <laughs> brown oh, hair, brown man. eyes. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> Not make Nothing. a doll out of me, I guess. <laughs> so Hallmark is like, okay, we got to expand this. Let's go to the big screen. So on November 25th, 1985. So close to your birthday. One year <laughs> and two days after I'm born. Wait, before you're born. No, 85. Oh, yeah. You're- one year and, wait, a little less than one year before I'm born. The film Rainbow Bright and the Star Stealer comes out. Okay. But the film is, like, not the success they hoped. First off, they animated the whole thing in three months, which up to that point was the fastest animated movie of all time. Remember, they did it by freaking hand. Now, they also outsourced a lot of it to Japan because they were, like, drawing anime, and that hadn't made it to the U.S. quite yet. So it's probably like, what is this? They're like, let's animate that. The critics go, it is an 85-minute commercial for a toy, which it absolutely was. Absolutely was. Um, Children across America. Like, it's a little too capitalist for me. Sorry, we're millennials. Screaming greetings and readings. We know what you're doing. (laughs) But it seemed that Rainbow Bright and Starlight, like, in this, they were kind of taken out of character. And there was, like, no more reference point. It was like, this isn't the show. This isn't what she does. She's Mm -hmm. in Rainbow Land, like, fixing shit. Mm -hmm. I mean, but fans did love it for years, and it became a staple on the Disney Channel. They, like, played it over and over again on TV. And I do want to say the animation in general was pretty okay. It was, like, it was fine. Um, It's weird because a lot of shows in the 80s had, like, either a really great theme song animation, and then the show was shitty, or... They, like, looked really good standing still, Mm. but then they started moving, and it was bad. So Rainbow Bright, the characters were amazing, but the backgrounds were really plain and looked half done. Mm -hmm. And it almost looks like it's part of a child's coloring book. Like, I really like that aspect to it. Like, you're looking down, and you colored the character, and then you're like, yeah, I'll finish the page real quick. Yeah. So that's how I call it coloring books. Interesting. Even though not, you know, a critical success... It, it introduced some characters that they could then sell, which okay. they did. Um, it introduced a character called Stormy, who's kind of a rogue color kid that's in charge of rain and snow. This goes back to the element thing they were mm-hmm. originally thinking of. Pink gets added to the color kids, so now we have Tickled Pink. Um, there's also um, Moonglow, who's in charge of, like, the nighttime. So they're starting to add all these dolls to the series. Well, this is sounding very Care Bearish. Yes. That, yeah. yeah, that's what it's kind of reminding me of. Yes, they're adding all the different colors are all in control of a different thing. Well, and again, it's like that thing of like when you expand the universe, when you give people these different side characters, then like you can kind of pick what you are. Yes. And I think that is always where like the money is and like exactly. where the merchandise people is. Lo- it's the same reason that people love horoscopes. It's like, what personality are mm-hmm. you? You know, even if you don't believe in astrology, it's a personality quiz. It's yeah. fun. So then the the writer, Howard R. Cohen, passes away. And it's kind of already been twinkling downhill. So all of his papers and things that he had written and been working on are donated to this library. And they discover what looks like a finale show that he had written for Rainbow Bright called Journey to the Source. 
they take it. It takes her back to some diamond planet where she gets an energy belt that is going to fix colors for all eternity. And they air it. And Rainbow Bright kind of has her final bang, her finale. Um, and it's like, although the popularity begins to wane, there are many attempts throughout the next 20, 30 years to kind of bring a new line into Rainbow Bright. And there are fans that stayed true over the last 30 years. There's a name, a girl named um caddy cardi haley and she's such a lover that she has all this stuff collected and it's turned half of her home into a rainbow bright memorabilia museum that you can go see she was um recognized on buzzfeed and the truffle show and metro uk so like you can go see all her stuff haley and another super fan have a podcast podcast called brightcast and it is the only rainbow bright podcast (laughs) but you can go listen to it um And there's a mass fandom for Rainbow Bright gear, especially there's some fan art that mashes up Rainbow Bright and X-Men because they both have that same vibe of like we're a crew of characters that are misfits and kind of all working together. And one particular fan artist said like, I'm from the 80s. I'm a geek and I'm also gay and I'm proud of it. And that's one of the things about Rainbow Bright that has kind of kept her in the zeitgeist that like, the characters literally are the LGBTQ plus flag. Like if you start to oh, stack yeah. them up together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, she started to kind of symbolize something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. In 2004, Hallmark Online Streaming released three episodes in a revival miniseries where Emily Asmet, Osment was uh, Rainbow Bright and Molly Ringwald was the Dark Princess. Like Emily the bad Osment, guy. she was from Hannah Montana. Yes, yeah, I know her very well. <laughs> yeah, like these are famous names that voiced the Rainbow Bright characters in 2014. The miniseries was followed by new toy releases by Hallmark at their Gold Crown stores, and they sold out in three days. Whoa! In 2015, all the Hallmark stores sold out in three days. In her day, Rainbow Bright was lightning in a bottle, but she still generates a lot of economic power 35 years later. She is featured and mentioned in comic books and shows, like shows like Family Guy make jokes about her like and bring her up because the people writing shows right now are from back then. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons that she's so long-lasting is because her main thing on her show was inspiring hope strength of spirit and the power in believing in a purpose there wasn't a happily ever after for her after she restored color to rainbow land she had to stay there and fight all the time and all the color kids had a job and they had to maintain their status it wasn't like i run off into the sunset at the end you have to stay vigilant to keep your Mm -hmm. happy and people really liked that about her and the show well before Inside Out acknowledged that emotions are complicated Mm. and everything can't be sunshine all the time. Specifically with Brian, the Earth Boy, there's one episode I can think of where he doesn't make the sports team he's trying out for, and Rainbow Bright tries to make him feel better by like painting all these rainbows all over the sky um and she doesn't understand why he's still sad and he's just like I just have to be sad about this for a while like I wanted to be on this team and now I'm not on the team I have to like mourn the joy I thought I was going to have oh my god and that's like 
why this show is so long lasting. So yeah. I wanted to end on that note because it is a cute children's show, but they did a really good job incorporating things that we don't see until 20, 30 years later yeah. in like Pixar movies. And fortunately, a lot of the people writing Disney and Pixar movies grew up watching things mm -hmm. like Rainbow Bright. Yeah. So she's inspired generations of people to go on and write children's characters that are meaningful and inspire joy. Oh. And that's Rainbow I Bright! Love it. That was so different than I thought it was going to be. That was so interesting. Yeah, she's a pretty cool, pretty cool chick. Yeah. All right, well, we need to talk about these two ladies in conversation with each other in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. All right, I mean, international stars. <laughs> Names in all different countries, in all different languages. How cool. How cool is that? That, like, they really were, like, international stars that aren't recognized for how popular they were in their time. Right. And I, I thought it was interesting that right off the bat, you were like, she had nine siblings. Two of them are boys. Uh -huh. It's like, that's Rainbow Bright. Yeah. All the color kids, two of them are boys. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like a very similar um, family structure. But then that main character, whether it's Ofra or Rainbow Bright, like, their goal is hope. Right. Well, and I think it's like, they're not trying to ignore their situation, but they are trying to help see the world uh, help the world see past their black and white scenario. Sure. That was kind of what I saw from both of them. It's like Rainbow Bright is literally like, no, no, no. Like <laughs> if the world is black and white, then we aren't seeing the nuance of everything. And mm -hmm. like, that is like the importance of like, it's like the whole argument against like when people are like, well, I don't see color, so I'm not racist. And right. it's like, well, you're full of shit. Like, right. <laughs> And also, it's like, if you're not seeing color, then you're not seeing who I am as a fucking person. Mm -hmm. And obviously, like, I don't think Rainbow Bright was particularly, like, involved in, like, the racial understanding game. But I do think that there's something to be said for, like, bringing more awareness to, like, we do need all these different things. And, like, Ofrahaza was doing that. She's like, I'm going to bring in my Israeli folk music, my Yemeni folk music, and I'm going to come in and make it dance pop songs. Yeah. So, like, you're dancing to this music that was written thousands of years ago, and you don't even fucking know it. Yeah. Like, that's so cool. I think, so. I mean, one of the longest-lasting um, battles of all time is, like, the battle for the Holy Land right there, mm. right? And, mm -hmm. like, the people having, like, religious and social and political conflict. And Ofra was very much like, we can be different and interact with one another. Uh -huh. And I think that Rainbow Bright doesn't necessarily do that, but she inspires this idea that, like, it's okay to be sad. Mm -hmm. It's okay that the bad guy has this backstory, and that makes you have sympathy for him. Yeah. Because I can look at somebody who is, um, you know, Muslim and living in Israel and say, hey, they might have this opinion, but there's a reason for it. Right. Like something happened or somebody who's Christian in the Holy Land or somebody who's Jewish. And it's like, well, you hold this deep-seated opinion, but there is a history as to why you hold that opinion. Right. And I think it's also interesting that, like, we were talking about how the villains in Rainbow Bright and other, like, cartoons that came out around the same time were very scary mm. and i think that that was similar in ofra's story too it's like 
maybe like the idea of them when you just hear them being talked about isn't so crazy. <laughs> but when you're talking about someone living through it and you're talking about being a kid and seeing those really like monochrome scary characters on TV, it's like it is very real. And when you're talking about a woman who she literally was afraid of being married to the wrong person her whole fucking life. Mm-hmm. And then got married to an asshole who stole her money and gave her AIDS. Yeah. It's like the villains are out there and they sometimes are just as scary as you thought they were going to be. Sometimes they're Hans from Frozen. Sucks. I mean, also like Ofra wanted the meat cute that Hallmark spews yeah in their movies like that's what she wanted yeah and and that's the thing that she was grasping for and didn't get she got the opposite of that she got the villain she married the bad guy i know and that's so distressing it is it's really distressing and it means also that like she didn't get her finale no think about like Mm -hmm. rainbow bright's finale because like there's two people that died too early obviously Mm -hmm. oprah and then cohen who was the guy on this project or whatever. Um, But like there's that unfinished story of like the diamond planet planet or whatever. And that was like rainbow brights finale. Like she got it, but Ofra didn't, Mm -hmm. she didn't get her lasting thing. Like because she had so much more to live for. And it kind of like really makes me upset that like even her death then is marred by political controversy and like how we felt about AIDS in the the year 2000 yeah and uh, how could this happen to her and I think that people deserve a good finale and I think it really sucks that Ofra was denied that it makes me really upset yeah I agree I will say that I do love that in both both of their animated lives like rainbow bright was voiced by a little girl mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. prince of egypt was boi- voiced by somebody in israel yeah like that's very important that they were both the real thing yeah well and uh hans zimmer said of Oprah, he goes not only is she the real thing he goes she's the best of the real thing mm. which absolutely breaks my heart that's and i beautiful and i love that because yeah i mean voice work and a lot of things are best when it's just like true and honest. And I think you can get a lot from a little girl who's voicing a rainbow superhero (laughs) and a middle Eastern woman who has felt what it is like to carry that history, especially because she's telling a story from her people's history about the Hebrew people being enslaved. Like, I just think you wouldn't want somebody else voicing that. No. And she did an incredible job. God. I don't oh. know. All right. Well, Are you ready to toast? I am. Who would you like to toast this evening? I just I I want to toast the the lessons that we learn when we're children. Mm. I think like mm. all the time about the creators of the Apple watch and how they probably watched inspector gadget, <laughs> yeah. like speak into his watch and mm-hmm. tell it to do things. And I think that we can learn real emotional lessons from mm-hmm. children's TV mm-hmm. as well, which is why fucking shit like TikTok ruins your children's brain because it's not syndicated. 
as much as like it's gatekeeping to keep people out of like those Mm -hmm. big things it's like there's also a reason for it (laughs) because their brains aren't being poisoned so just to the lessons you learn as children from media yes cheers i'm gonna toast the woman who bring us together i think that that was really ofra's true gift everyone who met her loved her wanted to collaborate with her and she not only brought people together from cultures and countries and languages but she also she brought like time and space together like when you hear her voice like you're like this is a voice that has been existing for thousands of years and that's really what kind of cuts through everything and you're like god she has a gift passed down from her ancestors and she's sharing it with the world to bring us together Mm. cheers cheers all right now what are you enjoying in pop culture this week i want to promo mylar balloons (laughs) i just look we're all in like a reduce reuse recycle phase and i think Latex balloons are bullshit. Now, do I buy them? Do I blow them up? Do I use them? Sure. Of course. But if you blow, also we're in a helium shortage, everyone. So, like, that's also that crazy. scary. Balloons are going to be expensive in 20 fucking years. I know. So it's like, if you get one Mylar balloon, it's inflated for weeks. Yeah, that weeks. is true. And you can uninflate it and use it again. That's I, really cool. I just think that they're so worth it. Like, let's all just collectively stop buying latex balloons. We don't need any more plastic floating around in the ocean. Yeah, that's true. So I just give a second thought to it. They're right. a little more expensive, but it is actually worth it. Perfect. Okay. I'm obviously going to promote the Prince of Egypt soundtrack. How could you and not? the movie itself. I mean, Mariah Carey is the only one still alive. <laughs> <laughs> so it- Jeff. Wait, who? Jeff Goldblum is like Moses? Who is? I know that. No, um, Aaron. He's Aaron. Yes, I think he he is Aaron. And Ralph Fiennes is <laughs> the Pharaoh. You mean Voldemort? Voldemort himself you is mean the Pharaoh. He who should not be named? Val Kilmer, I think, is Moses. How weird. Very weird. <laughs> like the whole, everything. Yeah. Batman well, himself? <laughs> I also love, because, like, <laughs> I love, the, I cannot tell you how many times I watched Prince of Egypt growing up. Such a good I movie. I fucking love this It's a movie. great movie. And I also found out that, like, when they were trying to figure out, because, like, obviously, like, Moses talks to the burning bush. Sure. And they're like, how do we do the literal voice of God respectfully? Mm-hmm. So they started trying a bunch of people out. And then they ended up bringing a whole bunch of people into the room and just had them speak at the same time because they're like, God shouldn't just be one person. Like an echo. Yeah, it should be like an echo of like everyone who exists in the world. Like they made so many conscious decisions when they made that movie, which is so funny to me that then it's like, but then you cast an almost entirely white cast. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like Jeff Goldblum is Jewish. Yes, he is. So like (laughs) we got a cast there. Yeah. But like, you know, it is interesting though that like, yeah, 
I don't know. It's such a good movie, though. It's so fucking good. I love My... the whale that swims up oh. when the when the sea is parted. Excuse me, are there Iconic. whales in the Red Sea? Probably are, not. Are there but whales? I really appreciate it. I'm gonna Google if there's whales in the Red um, Sea. <laughs> My dear, dear friend Lucy, who just had her baby this week, so exciting. Uh, unfortunately, she had a boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Gross. <laughs> Very fortunate for her. Um, but she was like. If it was a girl, I would have named her Zephora. <laughs> After Moses' wife. Of course. Zephora. So anyways, Prince of Egypt, if you haven't... I mean, and also, it is, again, such a baller-ass soundtrack. It is so fucking good. Yeah. There are 16 species of whales in the Red Sea. Wow. 16? Yeah. In the Red Sea? Yeah. Does that connect to the Mediterranean? Yes. Okay. I feel like I've been under the false No, impression. No. It connects to the Aegean Sea, which goes to the Indian Ocean. Whoa. It's down this side. But it does connect to the Mediterranean, but only through the canal okay. that we... Oh, built. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, that's what we're into? Suez Canal yeah. is its name. That's my knowledge for today. Perfect. If you want more knowledge from us and more hang times... More and about the like, Suez Canal. Yeah, more about the Suez Canal. <laughs> you can join us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can hang out with us. You can talk to us, and you can join our amazing fellow listeners who are also part of Patreon. It's such a good crew. I just love them so much. It's a really good group. We really love them. Yeah, they're the best. Um, But if you don't want to do that, that's fine. You could just leave us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. That would also be delightful because it doesn't cost you a goddamn thing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, join us back here next week for more Herstory fun, more cocktails. And meanwhile... Never forget that well-behaved women don't have any dirty dishes in their sink. (laughs) And they rarely make history. Goodbye. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.